0: I really enjoy my job and I think we can live with beavers in Britain. <laughs> this is definitely a vision of the future. Um, it's just how we do it and how we go about it. That's just, that's just the finer questions of skill.
1: Hello and welcome to the Lodgecast, a nature and wildlife podcast brought to you
2: by the Beaver Trust. I'm Sophie Pavel. And I'm Eva Bishop. Each episode, we bring you the latest news from the Beaver Trust as we welcome beavers back to restore our rivers and create resilient landscapes. And we also explore the state of nature in the UK and how beavers
1: can help the climate and biodiversity crises while speaking to fascinating experts and
2: inspiring individuals along the way. In this series, we're looking at what it really means to live with beavers and exploring the situations and solutions when beaver management is necessary. Today, we've got two brilliant expert guests for you. Firstly, wildlife ecologist at NatureScot, Dr Jenny Bryce. And complementing that agency view, our colleague here at Beaver Trust, Head of Restoration, Dr Rasheen Campbell-Palmer. Hello there, Eva, and welcome to this episode of Series
1: 5 of The Lodge Cast. How are you doing? Yes, very good. Glad for this good. one today. It's going to be good. Yeah, it is. I hope you're all ready to continue our travels through the, well, it's quite
2: international really, beaver management world. Yep, travels indeed. Thank goodness they're virtual. Um we've heard tales of beaver situations in the US and the Czech Republic already in this series. But today we're heading north, leaving balmy Devon, where you and I are, and setting our sights on Scotland.
1: Yeah, so it's really important I think in beaver reintroduction stuff in Britain to remember that we are actually made up of devolved nations. So when we're talking about beavers, we're talking about beavers in Britain And we're talking about beavers in Scotland, Wales and England. So just bear that in mind as we navigate through this episode, if you will.
2: Yes. And for this one in particular, we're highlighting Scotland and the learning there in terms of beaver management, because they're actually a couple of years ahead in terms of beaver restoration and the policy surrounding that and the management framework surrounding that. So we've got a lot to learn in England and Wales, potentially from the lessons in Scotland. Well. before we meet our
1: lovely guests, why don't we have a quick recap as to what's happened with beavers in Scotland and where we're at now?
2: Yeah, so beavers in Scotland, they've been there a, a couple of decades now. They what, There was a trial at Knapdale in 2009 called the Scottish Beaver Trial. There's lots of information about that online if anyone's interested in looking that up. Um, and then the Scottish government announced in November 2016 that beavers would remain in Scotland after that trial. And then they became a protected species from 2019. So that's a couple of years before they were then protected in England. Hmm. Today, though, really impressively, Scotland has a Scottish beaver strategy which sets out to 2045 how we're going to reintegrate beavers and support communities working together to maximise the ecosystem and wider benefits of beavers. And minimise negative impacts. So they're looking at the long term, which is a Mm. really important thing to consider when you're reintroducing a keystone species.
1: Yeah, massively. So they're really leading the way um, in so many regards. And I think a key difference between Scotland and England and Wales is that in Scotland, there is a licensing and management framework that allows for wild beaver releases in specific catchments.
2: Yes, something that we are hoping to move towards in England and Wales in the future, in the near future. So we've got Scotland, which is further ahead in its journey with beavers in the landscape, still working on how beavers, the, be- the beaver journey continues there. But also for England and Wales, there's a lot we can learn from what they've done to date. So we'll mm-hmm. hear more about all that from our guests today.
1: Yes, and lucky us. We've got two wonderful women to chat to in this episode. So I think that's probably enough from us for now. Um, And let's
2: bring in guest number one. Now, when in 2008, the Scottish Government approved a licence for a beaver trial and monitoring programme at Napdale, called the Scottish Beaver Trial, do have a look. Dr Jenny Bryce was involved in the ecology reporting there with the University of Oxford. And since 2020, she has been involved in beavers with Nature Scott. So she is now the project manager for their beaver mitigation scheme. Jenny, hello. Welcome to The Lodgecast. It's wonderful to have you with us. Hi there. Thanks for inviting me. Great. Now, before we get into the details about Scottish beaver management and mitigation, we'd like to invite you to be part of one of our fun favourite bits of The Lodgecast. It's the fact-off. Yep. So Eva and I uh come prepared with a
1: fun beaver fact, which we have we have diligently researched. And all you need to do, Jenny, is tell us which one you think is best. And then at the end of the series, one of us will be crowned the overall winner. Are you ready?
2: Oh, cool. go <laughs> okay then. So <laughs> right, so I've got a simple but quite interesting fact for me, for the layman, um, which is about the number of chromosomes that Castor Fiber and Castor Canadensis have. They apparently they cannot interbreed because castor fiber has 48 chromosomes and castor canadensis has only 40. Crazy amazing fact. Pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Uh
1: so mine is uh well we all know that that beavers are well adapted to water and they have this tongue which is raised and when it's raised it also basically shuts off their hairy furry lips which sit behind their incisors. Those of you who have listened to the Lodgecast before will know that the lips close behind the teeth. Um, and this raised tongue prevents unwanted material or water being swallowed when the beaver is running around or swimming around under the water foraging. And it also allows them to chew with their molars without swallowing water.
0: Mm,
3: well... it's mine. Sorry, Eva, I think I might go with, with that last one because that's not something I ha- oh, I've come across yes, before. Jenny... So um, No apologies needed. Interesting. Sophie's just delighted. Thank you, Jenny. You
1: have uh, helped (laughs) me more than you know. Okay, so before we get into our conversation about Beavers in Scotland, could you describe for us, Jenny, what it is you you do with Nature Scott and how did you come to work with Beavers in Scotland?
3: Yeah, so I work as part of the the wildlife Management team in Nature Scott and I guess uh, my particular role is managing the beaver mitigation scheme that we have in Scotland. So yeah, I've worked for NHS for over oh, 20 years now in, in a variety of roles, so I guess I've been involved with a number of different species and probably only over the last few years with, with beavers.
2: Jenny, it's particularly good to have you here as you're well positioned to give an agency perspective on some of the policies and funding context needed for beaver management. What can you, to throw you straight into the deep end, what can England and Wales learn from Scotland, given that you're a couple of years ahead in experience of mitigation on the ground?
3: I don't know if I kind of want to put it in those terms, but I can certainly explain a little bit about uh, how things operate here. And I guess we've possibly come from a different place Mm -hmm. in Scotland in how beavers were in the landscape before they were protected and officially here, and hence things might come about in a different way you know should there be a more efficient approach to beaver reintroductions elsewhere but certainly here I guess a key part of having beavers here and having um, stakeholders from very different perspectives kind of working together in this landscape has been around having a a framework for how we are going to manage beavers um, in Scotland so that's Recognising the many benefits that they can bring, but also recognising that where they are having a negative impact that that, that we have means of dealing with with these issues as they occur. We call it our our beef management framework. And I guess the the key aspects of that are the the species licensing approaches and also the the mitigation scheme that we have, which is aimed at supporting land managers who might be experiencing some of those negative impacts. Thank you. That's a really good description. Really helpful for our listeners. Jenny it was really amazing
1: to see Nature Scott publish the Scottish beaver strategy which runs through to 2045. Obviously it's really important to have or to demonstrate and share with the public that you have a vision of where you're trying to get to and how to get there with beaver restoration across the country. What's next for Beavers in Scotland based on that vision?
3: Yeah so um, vision is to 2045 so it's quite a, a long time scale, but the that's, yeah. That strategy has a sort 10-year of implementation plan. So there's there's a whole series of actions in there which are intended to take us towards that vision. So it's maybe worth just setting out what that vision is. And it's to see beavers throughout Scotland and people working together to see the benefits from that. And at the same time, having the appropriate management and mitigation measures in place to ensure that any negative impacts are minimised. So So that is the goal and say so there's a range of actions that have been set out to take us towards that point.
2: That's lovely to hear you say the vision is to have beavers throughout Scotland. I think not everyone would agree with that and would they'd have concerns in specific
3: catchments. What would you say to those people? Um, no, undoubtedly, and I think that came across quite strongly in our all our discussions with stakeholders in, in developing that strategy. So, yeah, obviously, the detail of that then looks through at how you might go about, you know, deciding where those appropriate places are, and I think it is a case of looking at the various risks and benefits of beavers in those different locations, and it might be a question of priority and timescales in terms of you know where we might want to see beavers more quickly in order to see more of those benefits, and obviously in the longer term, it's more likely that. Beavers will colonize other areas more naturally, but that might not be such a, a proactive decision to put them in those places.
2: Mm. And is it partly down to people coming forward with license applications who want beavers? And would you encourage more people to do that? Or is it about Nature Scott leading which
3: catchments come next? Do you think? Um well, we've done some analysis, um, which we hoped would inform that thinking, looking at the best areas for beavers in terms of being the most suitable habitats, in terms of where they might deliver more benefits and equally where where there are potentially more conflicts either with agriculture or with other activities so we've we've done some of that analysis and put that out there and I guess hoping that that would help inform others thinking about you know where would be the best places but um, yes I think then we are looking for others to come forward with their proposals and um, we would encourage others to do that and we'll have that kind of early discussion about you know what our thoughts are on those proposals and then you know, there would be the need to to do some more detailed analysis and also for whoever was hoping to take forward a proposal to to do that engagement which would be the next step particularly with the those in the local area that would be most likely to be affected by a proposal but partly to explain you know what it would mean but also just to explore some of those those risks and benefits
1: Obviously, Jenny, with this with this vision to twenty forty five, you're you're working towards a vision of coexistence where beavers and, and human communities can live alongside each other. But what are the resources required for beaver management in Scotland? Is central funding essential, and is the current level of funding enough, or is this something that you're looking
3: to evolve down the line? Um, there's a, there's quite a lot in there. <laughs> so, so, there is a commitment in the strategy to continue to support the mitigation of beavers. Mm-hmm. equally, I think we would see beavers as being obviously you know relatively newly back in in the landscape, and hence our general knowledge and skills of how to deal with negative impacts when they do arise it is to maybe a different place than than it is for for other species that we're dealing with. So I think we are recognizing that and hence putting in. The support at this stage to try and you know develop that knowledge and develop guidance and financial support. Do you mean sorry? Yes. So the bit of mitigation scheme, I guess, in terms of ha- where the focus of that is, is in trying to build that skills and capacity and knowledge information, so that so that we can collectively develop that, and then you know, one would hope that over time, you know, the the requirement for for that input would reduce as more people hmm. have experience of, of just living with beavers than, than we do at the moment. So so there is a commitment there at the moment. But yeah, I think equally this aspiration of normalising what it is to have beavers in the landscape. Beaver Trust carries out
2: the mitigation work under contract with Nature Scots, worth stating that for our viewers. Um, but you will have a nice holistic view of whether that framework is effective Um, it'd be really interesting to hear your feedback on the measures in place at the moment and whether you've received feedback from stakeholders who have received the mitigation work on the ground and what complexities there are. Um, Because, for example, what I hear a lot from our restoration team is that the people quite often, it's, it's not the beaver that they're worried about, they really want to welcome them back. And actually, having had some of the mitigation techniques in place you know they're, they're delighted if they can help the beaver stay is that what you're hearing from some of the do you do you actually receive any feedback from stakeholders receiving this work
3: we do i, I would say um I, I think like 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 most things it's probably a bit of a mixed bag um there's obviously you know people out there who are experiencing negative impacts they didn't necessarily ask for beavers to be there in the first place so while there are tools uh, that we can offer, whether that's species licensing or or mitigation approaches in some cases, they might still be incurring some some costs and some time from their perspective and going out and, and checking for dams and that sort of thing. So I wouldn't like to say that everyone is entirely happy with the, the situation. But yeah, obviously the purpose of mitigation is to try and reduce the, the negative impacts and at the same time promote coexistence. So where we can look at that t- type of approach I think it's 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 more likely to be a satisfactory outcome um I guess both from the point of view of being able to to keep the beavers there and see the the wider benefits that they can deliver but also um from a largely a, a land manager's perspective then if they can tolerate the, the le- level of impacts then then that's obviously a win-win situation
2: mm, absolutely will there will there always be a need for lethal control, do you think, in that landscape as po- populations increase? It's a contentious issue. It is.
3: and uh, Yeah, I think certainly the land managers are dealing with those serious conflicts. We know will say that, that that is something that they see the need for to allow them to be able to deal with issues that arise effectively. And I think we're sympathetic to that. We've seen examples of that. I guess the longer term, obviously, as we have more beavers in the landscape, there will be fewer places to put them. So, uh, I, I think there will definitely still be a need for for lethal control to be on, on the table. But obviously, yes, yeah, we are working closely with with the land managers where they are experiencing conflicts to try and proceed trapping um, wherever that's possible, and obviously working with with beaver trust to to do that.
2: Mm. Good. Good if we can reduce the numbers, but it has to be on the table really because it's there are some situations that really require that. What proportion of the calls that you receive are that level of serious, do you think, at the moment as things stand in Scotland?
3: I think what we've seen, um, because the very serious damage issues are tending to be quite geographically restricted. So, you know, we've seen issues in areas, particularly the sort of the prime agricultural land areas, which tend to be flat and have um, a reliance on on field drainage, so so we're seeing issues in those areas, and they've been quite long standing issues. So we're not seeing that same uh, as beavers expand their range into other parts of Scotland. We haven't seen that being replicated elsewhere, and hence um, we possibly are getting reports of more sort of nuisance type impacts in, in other areas, rather than necessarily very serious damage. But you know there are still occasionally impacts on infrastructure whether that's sort of culverts, bridges, the rail network. So there is the potential for, for those sorts of impacts to occur in other areas, I think. But it's certainly we're not inundated with, with new things happening you know, every day. It's, no. it's a, a relatively settled picture and we know where the main issues are at present.
2: Yeah, that's really pleasing to hear. We often say to people that there are a lot of, there's a lot of experience in Europe. All these mitigation techniques are really well established. And therefore, you know, we we can allow beavers back and manage the impacts where they're not wanted.
1: Jenny, is obviously, as you mentioned, different countries are at different stages and England and Wales are navigating beaver reintroduction and management frameworks and wild release policy asks and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. Do you ever talk with Natural England about what's going on in, in England and Wales? And, you know, do you have any advice about what questions we should be asking when we're at this point in
3: the process? So we, we do uh, talk quite regularly and I guess just mm-hmm. generally exchange updates in terms of where we are. I don't think we're in a position to to offer ad- advice in terms because, again, things are you know in a different position and have come from a, a different place. But yeah, we're, we're in regular contact, I would say.
2: This is a double episode with Rasheen as well, so we can't talk for too much longer, sadly. There's loads of questions, but... I would love to get your bit of a vision across of how it might look when there are loads of beavers around. One of the things that we are trying to promote is the concept of river buffer zones and giving nature space, which is never more appropriate than with beavers because they need that riverside room to renaturalize processes. Can you sort of paint a picture for our listeners of what your ideal outcome is, whether that's being considered in Scotland and whether to what degree that might help alleviate conflicts and challenges?
3: In terms of the extent to which it will alleviate a lot of the conflicts, I think possibly a lot of them. And I don't know quite portion, but the one issue that it doesn't necessarily help address is this issue around damming of of drainage. So where there are areas of land that are dependent upon fuel drainage, then having a bigger buffer doesn't necessarily resolve those issues, and that you can still end up with with areas being impacted. But I think a lot of the other issues would be resolved mm. by by those bigger margins. So yeah. yes, I'm sure, you know, we'd like to see them more widely in the landscape for a whole variety of reasons. But equally, we are yeah. conscious that in some landscapes, they are delivering other important benefits. And obviously, the the food production one is the one that we have probably seen hmm. a lot of in Tayside because of the, the the importance of that land for food production. But we might not necessarily see the same Pattern as beavers move into other landscapes and that there there may be a bit more capacity to use or to manage that riparian land in a different way to deliver multiple benefits. So yeah, I'm not sure if that answers the question.
2: No, it does. It does. That's really helpful actually. And just to extend on that, you talk of Tayside, which is the area of a lot of beaver conflict because it's prime agricultural land. Do you think we are getting the balance right between Given the climate and ecological emergencies, do you think we are collectively getting the balance right between food, production,
3: and nature restoration? Oh, I think that's a it's a big question. <laughs> and it obviously goes all the way to the top, you know, politically in terms of land use policy and how we are managing our land. But obviously we have set out that there are particular areas that are of high value because of the, the productivity. And I'm sure the farmers will say that. In terms of some of those those other challenges, then producing local food is you know, an important way of meeting some of those other climate challenges. So I, mm. I think we shouldn't ignore that. But yes, obviously at the same time, even within those landscapes, there are still opportunities for, for seeing more nature and needing more space for nature. So yeah, let's hopefully we can see the benefits from both.
1: Um, I just have one more last question about public engagement. So what, Proportion of Nature Scotts' vision for um, beaver restoration across Scotland is focusing on public engagement, science communication, educating the public. What influence does that have on the success and acceptance of management
3: strategies? How important is it to have the public on board? Yeah, I think hugely important, and particularly as you know, we start to see beavers in more areas and more people are seeing beavers that, you know, people understand what it means to to have beavers back. And I think that is hugely important. So yeah, obviously there's a there's a whole strand of the strategy that is looking at the communications side of things. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not just Nature Scott, obviously that are uh, delivering the, the strategy. There's a whole host of people involved in that. So yeah. that grouping that are are particularly looking at those actions with the strategy you will know, we'll come together and formulate a plan. As, and that is one of the actions is to develop a communications plan as to how best to, to do that that next steps.
1: Sounds great. Well, um, Jenny, we could talk to you for so much longer, but conscious that you're a a very busy lady with an important job. So I think we'll we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating to speak with you and get a bit of a window into what's going on up there. And thank you for for your work and for your time. Nice to speak to you. Thank you. I'll tell you what I really enjoyed hearing from Jenny was how seriously she said they just got us taking the whole public engagement side of things. Because I think with beaver management and mitigation, it's it's so nuanced. There's a tendency to get a little bit, not blinkered, but to just be thinking on that lane and then forgetting the kind of landscape long-term view. And so to not only hear her talking a lot about the long-term view and the, the journey to 2045, but to also be including the public on that journey. And to hear that there's a whole mm-hmm. comms plan going on, um, because it's so important to bring people along with you and not just the people who are affected by the management and the beavers, but also the communities and the wider networks of people across Scotland who are going to be indirectly impacted by all of this.
2: Yes, completely. And it's something, you know, the people side of things is something we're constantly hearing from Rasheen and her team, who we're going to be hearing from next. So that's very exciting one of the things that I really loved there was the intention to have beavers across mm. Scotland and it feels really well thought out you know there's a plan and there's practical mm-hmm. steps and there's funding behind it and they're just it's happening getting it done and clearly having to move quite quickly and perhaps quicker than they'd like but they're doing it they're not sort of pausing and saying no we'll just have three years to think about it. Mm. Yeah, I like that a lot. Completely. Anyway, without further ado, it is time to welcome our second guest for this episode, Dr. Rasheen Campbell Palmer. Longtime Lodgecast listeners might recognize Rasheen from Series One, where she joined us to talk about the ins and outs of beaver translocation. So do go back and give that a listen if you haven't already.
1: We're very lucky to call Roisin, our colleague here at Beaver Trust. She is head of our restoration team and she also carries out beaver management practically in the field and has done so for many, many years. So she's always a fascinating oracle of knowledge to speak to about beavers. Roisin, hello. You have the honour of being our first repeat guest on The Lodgecast. Welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me.
2: Yes, it's great to have you here. And that means that the first thing we're going to do is ask you to cast your vote for the winner of this week's fact off. So I'm going to give my fact first. And mine is something that I think is uh, really incredible. So it's the population figures of beavers, of the Eurasian beaver specifically. So when they were at their most hunted and and nearly extinct, the numbers were down to about a thousand of them across the whole of Eurasia. And just in sort of Norway, France and Germany, I think. And now they're back to 1.2 million beavers Um, Thanks to human intervention and sort of conservation translocations, which I think is an amazing achievement. There's my fact.
1: (laughs) That's pretty amazing. Um, Now, this one, I'm suddenly aware that it looks like I'm sucking up to the teacher a little bit because this fact was pinched from Roisin's wonderful book, Beaver's Ecology, Behavior, Conservation and Management from Chapter 3. A little bit of beaver anatomy for you listeners. So epiglottis, should we just let that word (laughs) sink in for a second? That's a pretty good one. Um, The epiglottis is a flap of tissue in mammals that uh, we have, and in us, in our bodies, it prevents food blocking the windpipe, which is fairly important. Um, But in beavers, the epiglottis can also be moved, but the main function of this is to prevent water entering the larynx and the trachea. So once again, a wonderful adaptation to an aquatic environment. Is my fact. So, Rasheen, what are you drawn to? Uh,
0: 1.2 million beavers or an epic lotus? Wow. <laughs> well, what a choice. And, you know, I do love a raised tongue adaptation. And, you know, we must respect the beaver evolution. But I think I'm slightly prejudiced in our, I guess my role in head of restoration that we can't beat 1.2 million beavers. I'm sorry, but that is why we're here. And uh. hopefully... Those numbers will be rising. Yeah,
2: get in. I I couldn't agree more. (laughs) (laughs) Funny that. that. (laughs) Thank you very much. No, that's fab. Um, So this episode, Rasheen, is looking all about uh, managing beavers within the licensing landscape and on the ground. You do all the management. You're there at the coalface seeing the beavers themselves, which is such a privilege and a lot of that work is in Scotland. Now, we've already heard from Jenny today, but and many of our listeners will be aware of your own work as well, whether that's seeing you at moments of release that we publicise or some of your surveying work, looking for beaver signs from a kayak in torrential rain sometimes, or hoiking incredibly heavy traps around the middle of nowhere. Like it's a, it's a full on job and there is never a typical day for you. Can you give us a sense of what it's like? Take us through one of, take us through an example day recently up in Scotland. What's it like at the coalface of fever management?
0: Well, yeah. What is a typical day? Good question. I, I mean, what I really love about my work is it's varied. Uh, you can definitely say two days are not the same, and sometimes that can be frustrating because you can start off the day with some plans and they can quickly get swept aside as you're kind of reactive to situations. Now that can be, like you mentioned, if we're during trapping season, we have to be reactive. I mean, the animals come first, though if we have animals in traps, that's our first line of duty and we'll be bringing them in and taking them for health screening. Or, you know, it can be very reactive. Uh, You're responding almost to the weather and to people's concerns with beaver activities and weather. So whether it's, um, I guess, there's a lot of rain at the minute. Two weeks ago, we were in bright sunshine in Scotland and 25 degrees. But now it's been torrential rain ever since. So you can see that in uh, some of the flat landscapes as the water levels rise and if dams are in the system, you know, that can be a legitimate concern that we have to go out and deal with there and then. Yeah, okay. And I mean,
2: you've just said there that successful management has to be done quite quickly. It's very responsive what you're doing. Do we have enough people out there doing that? What's what's really needed to make that happen?
0: (laughs) Yeah, another good question, maybe a, a political one as well. I mean... We have a team of people on the ground in Scotland. We're obviously looking and waiting to see what will happen in England. We're working with various beaver management groups in England. And their their jobs and roles and, and demand will change as beaver densities rise and as their distribution spreads. But really just to flag up, beaver activities and different catchments are going to be so variable that there's not almost a one-size-fits-all model And it really depends on your landscape. So in low-lying, flat, agricultural, kind of heavy-drained landscapes, we can see there are absolutely more conflicts with beavers coming back into those systems. But you can contrast them with other catchments that are more naturalized or have a bit of gradient, um, or even just a bit of space around the water. And the degree of beaver conflicts are significantly reduced. So I think to me, it opens up a lot of wider questions of how What is beaver management going to look like? And that is really going to be dependent on your catchment, on resource availability, but also the people on the ground and the landowners and the land managers and and what they can tolerate and, and what they can't. But the whole point of beaver management, I believe, is to be reactive, like you mentioned, to at least kind of hear and experience people's concerns. Some of them might be very valid. Some of them might be subjective. Some of them might be maybe just a bit of a a reaction to change. But you have to be there on hand to have these conversations, be open, be frank, and to kind of look at the authorities as well and see what is possible to really Mm -hmm. facilitate and encourage coexistence.
1: Yeah, that's really important. And I think um, just to kind of broaden out that conversation about Every catchment's different, the context dependency on management. Different scenarios of conflict or coexistence require different management techniques. So you started to talk a little bit about navigating this hierarchy of solutions. Could you give us perhaps um, a kind of hypothetical solution that is obviously something that you deal with regularly and maybe walk us through, okay, if Beaver does X, what do you and your team do in the field to mitigate against that?
0: Well, often when beavers first kind of appear on a landscape and, you know, some of these issues might be very site-specific or some of the uh, reactions to them can be very personal as well. So if you take, for example, fallen trees, now this is something from a mitigation point of view we can readily um, address and we can readily kind of um, put up, you know, tree meshes, tree guards that can kind of alleviate that situation What we're trying to really do in more recent years is to kind of ask the questions. It's not about protecting every tree, but maybe it's about protecting those trees that are either valuable from a, and it can be a personal context, you know, that could be someone's favourite apple tree, you know, that their aunt planted 60 years ago. Or it can be, you know, a high value crop tree, or it can be, you know, a tree of uh, significant conservation value. The thing is, we're not going to protect every tree Um, and prevent beaver foraging. I mean, that's just no aspiration. So just because we can protect trees doesn't mean we are rushing out to protect every tree. We're asking people to be selective and we're looking at the wider picture of, well, look, how are we really managing the riparian woodland, riparian vegetation next to our rivers and waterways? So I think it's about a wider question there about building riparian vegetation, riparian zones that are resilient to beaver foraging and they just fit back into the natural picture. So you can imagine, as a whole host of different conversations. Whether it's someone's back garden that leads onto a river, or whether it's you know that kind of patch of wilderness, scrubby willow that's at the bottom of your garden, those are very two different scenarios that will require different conversations, potentially different um, mitigation techniques. But again, I think you know a lot of this is based on being open and talking to people, and it can be amazing, really, how people can then relook at the situation. Um, and you know, be selective about what's important to them, what uh, they are ready not to let go, but ready to naturalise and just how they really think about the bigger picture. That is, there's a lot
2: in it, isn't there? But you mentioned there the, the conversations and the human side of it. I wonder how much of your work day to day and in reality is the people versus practical beaver management.
0: Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, I started all this. I'm an animal person. <laughs> you know, I hold my hands up. I'm not a people person as in I'm not trained to deal with people or conflicts. But I guess over the years, I think it's something that's come. And I just try to take a really open approach and just let, obviously listen to people. And we don't have all the answers. And you know there are challenging and frustrating conversations. And there are people that are, I guess, really pushed to the edge of what they're comfortable with. But, you know, you have to listen, you have to be open. And I think we have to be very transparent about what we can fix, what we can help, and the mm. kind of resources that are available to people. It's the, it's the only way through. Mm. And of course, the more you do
2: it, the more you can preempt and see what's what's situations might arise and help people with those.
0: Yeah, I think to me the refreshing thing about with beavers is... It's almost the same challenges that come up. Um, So we aren't faced with a whole host of unknown or unsolvable um, situations. We can uh, implement these techniques. We've learned so much of our European colleagues and our North American colleagues. Like I said, it's the same scenarios that run. But what I think does change is the individual reactions to them, the circumstances that they occur in. And then I guess ultimately what resources or uh, legal framework we can operate in. I mean, Roisin, 15 years, that's such a long time to be working in such
1: a unique field with so much change happening around you. What lessons have you learned while working so closely in Scotland's journey with beavers? And what do you consider to be the priorities for England and then Wales when it comes to us also trying to foster and collaborate? beaver and human coexistence
0: yeah that's a big question I think (laughs) well how can I sum it up um yeah 15 years is a bit scary now but I think (laughs) what what I can see is things have changed and as more people come into the kind of beaver beaver world beaver scenarios um I can see firstly I think there's a frustration at, at the slowness of pace but if I take a step back and look at it, it's like, wow, things have drastically changed in my short time uh, working with beavers. From, you know, when we did the Scottish beaver trial, that was the first kind of uh, legitimized um, mammal kind of release. We went to Norway, we've got the beavers, super exciting. But I mean, we were then answering questions like, can beavers even survive in a Scottish and British context? Which kind of, I guess, sounds a bit laughable now, because we know, but, you know, that was one of the the aims we were tasked with. To now we are, you know, having parliament questions on do beavers provide a vital role in in restoring natural processes? So we have come a long, long way. And there's obviously a lot more beavers present across the British landscapes. So that really excites me. I think the next step about how do we, you know, we, we just have to coexist. And that takes experience. It takes understanding. It takes, I think, a wider society recognition that we just have to look at, some of our waterways. We have to look at how we're managing some of our landscapes. Um, I mean, agricultural seems like an easy kind of sector to pick on, but it's not about that. It's about kind of looking at how are we are managing um, landscapes that humans want to be with uh, or be in. So areas such as prime agricultural land, we know how valuable that is to humans. That's not going to change. But here we are trying to bring back significant keystone species that can drastically change landscapes if we let it. Some of those changes are super exciting. They will generate wider benefits for the whole of society. But we have to realise and accept and be truthful and acknowledge that to the individual landowner, they might come with significant challenges and let's face it, a resource cost. So are we as society going to support the localised issues that beavers can cause to see the wider benefits? And I think we have to get to that point Where that's a bit of an accepted norm. (laughs) And ultimately that beavers are seen as a native part of our wildlife and they're normalized. So I think at the current situation, beavers are still turning up in new catchments where people haven't experienced them again. Uh, You go through this wave of concern, challenges, uh, and worry. So and that can that wave, don't get me wrong, can last for several years. Uh, People get frustrated, they feel that they've been left. Um, with no resources or mechanisms to cope with them. and um, That can almost turn the tide against um, having this species back. So I think you have to grab people at that point, reassure them that there is a licensing framework, that there are mitigation solutions, and ultimately that there are resources um, to, to f- facilitate coexistence. And I think if you lose people early in that journey, it's very hard to come back from. So... That, to me, is the, is the moving field that we need to address at the minute.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. Um, and it's quite complex, isn't it? I, I One of the questions that I get a lot, which leads on from that, is what does beaver management look like when there are 20,000 beavers in Britain? So we've got about 2,000 at the moment and we're managing it. But are you comfortable that we can cope with a beaver management when beaver populations are where we'd like them to be?
0: I I think to me, beaver mitigation, as in installing methods um, to facilitate coexistence, they're easy. They're tried and tested, they're done. The wider question, the crux of this question is, I guess, the political appetite to do it and resources. Now, those might be government resources, they might come from the NGO sector, but you know, resources are needed and you need that reactive response and people that can speak from experience to go out and, and kind of reassure the, the kind of change, if you know what I mean, the crossover. The 2,000-odd beavers that we're fairly confident we have, they are so kind of dispersed. Uh, they're in low concentrations and pretty much, if you look at Britain, the, the four corners of Britain. Um, so twenty thousand beavers to me doesn't look like anything scary because beavers will fill a catchment and um, they will jump catchments. Uh, they will—it sounds silly—but they will sort it out amongst themselves. Beavers are high, highly territorial; they won't breed and breed and breed and be on top of each other. They all have to take up uh, you know a certain amount of of river or, or lock or lake length. So beaver populations will stabilize. We see this time and time again across Europe and North America. They're territorial species. They won't live on top of each other. But before we ever even reach that point, I think the society or cultural tolerance of beavers is met before that. And that is because I think we're used to quite managed landscapes. And um, we've got visions of, you know, quite manicured rivers, quite manicured gardens or, or lakes. Mm-hmm. And what we have, I think, lost the touch of is these kind of messy um, riparian woodlands that are subject to different kind of influences and chaos and disruption. And, and that's what beavers do. They disrupt systems. But if we want to see their services, the ecological services they can provide and the, the boost to biodiversity they can provide, we have to almost let them be and let them generate and, and create this this natural process and this exciting change and dynamic change. So Mm -hmm. I think we've got a lot of work to do on what is the cultural acceptance of beavers. So long story short, 20,000 beavers doesn't doesn't scare me. (laughs) We can implement a whole range of management systems in that, but we have to have a management system and I guess society attitude that if beavers do turn up in these landscapes, there's a safety net of a managed mitigation program that will assist those localised landowners that will feel the kind of disproportionate impacts of beavers. Mm. Thank you. That's
2: great to hear, actually. Very reassuring. And you talked a little little bit about beavers there. And we tend to talk about them as if we're sort of distributing chairs around the country, but they're actually a wild animal. How does it feel? Do Do you think that animal welfare is enough? Are we doing enough for the beavers themselves? What's it like to trap and be right next to, and have in your care, the wild animal, the beaver?
0: Um, I mean, I guess it's always exciting, but it comes with a, you know a burden of responsibility. Trapping any wild animal, like you mentioned, you know, it's stressful. You have to see this as a living being that was going about its business and has had a very rude kind of awakening and a trap. We really try and strive to do our best By using, you know, the high quality equipment, make sure we're checking, make sure we're making the whole process as seamless and as stress free as possible. So we take so many measures and you can imagine in Britain, especially, you know, we have high welfare laws for a reason. And I'm quite proud of that. And our whole restoration team really do, I feel, go above and beyond to make sure it's as painless as possible. We use high spec live traps that we've learned from our Bavarian counterparts work well. We're very lucky and I'm touching the table because I don't want to jinx it. You know, we experienced very very low to no uh, trap injuries. And um, we have now moved and translocated hundreds uh, of beavers over the years. And I'm very proud of our survival rates and our kind of uh, post-release success. But you know, you never, you never take that for granted. And every beaver, you know, there are individual differences, there are individual personalities. And, um, yeah, I think we really just strive to do our best by them. But just to stress, you know, trapping and moving is really a last case scenario. It's not something we relish or run out to do. I guess it's, it's a consequence of situations in which maybe landowners don't feel supported. They don't feel that there's mitigation options there or resources. And we are trying to support a licensing framework that exists by offering alternatives, often to lethal control, but um, trying to support wider beaver distribution um, to areas where they really are welcomed and and wanted. So yeah, just to emphasize, we don't see trapping and translocation as a solution. It's almost like a temporary fix of a situation that I hope will get better in time, as in those landowners that feel they've no alternatives uh, but to remove beavers will be supported in time by either making their lands more (laughs) beaver-proof or having more naturalised systems that beavers could exist whilst farming can continue. And that sounds a bit idealistic, but I think we need to be getting to that kind of point or at least having those conversations because trapping and removing beavers is not a solution. We can see, you know, we work with the same landowners over many years now, beavers come back in and we can successfully relocate a family and we'll probably be there the year after to relocate another family so is it solving the problem no I think it's taking some of the heat out of the situation I think it provides temporary relief but to me it's not facilitating coexistence so to quote you back at yourself it's better the beaver you know a hundred (laughs) percent it is and you know in a way and I I totally empathize if if there's situations where beavers can't be tolerated that's that's fine Um, we'll park that but if there's any way to live alongside a resident beaver family, what, what they will do, they will keep other beavers away if nothing else. And I think, and that's when I'm talking about some of these conversations that we're trying to have on the ground, it's like, if you know that beaver family, you almost know where it's likely to dam every year, where it's likely to forage, or you know what range of impacts it can have on your site, because you know your site better than anyone. And if you can almost work with that and put mitigation methods in to increase the resilience... Of you know your land and with beavers in that system, that goes so much further than removing the beaver family from that situation. Then it's almost like a wave of dispersers come in. Uh, you might end up with a whole host of different um, issues and impacts and scenarios that that you didn't have before. So ultimately, that that is better the beaver family. You know, yeah. Mm. Um,
1: Rasheen, we just wanted to end with a positive note because for all the complications and challenges there must be a real sense of positivity and it must be a rewarding experience to be working in the way that you do, but striving for such a positive, hopeful thing, which is coexistence and living a life more holistically alongside the natural world. So what, for you, are the most enjoyable parts of the beaver management side of things?
0: Yeah, um, good question. Uh, I absolutely, I mean, it does sound cheesy, but I, I love engaging with the animals when we do relocate them, especially as a family group, I mean, to see them swimming away somewhere um, where they really wanted, I mean, that that doesn't change, that doesn't get the gut old. But what I would say, when you have those moments um, with landowners that you can um, like diffuse the situation or or at least come to some sort of more common understanding, I mean, those are really kind of valuable to me. And if we can help a landowner to even step back and go okay that's not as bad as before <laughs> you know I'm happy yeah. with that as well and you know just to really flag there's a lot of really good landowners we work with that you know really respect this animal and you know when you're close to, you, you can't help but respect it when you have those moments that um, you can really uh, engage with a landowner and make a situation better I mean those are are super important i, I you know I can say it sounds cheesy, but that gives me hope that we can do this on a larger scale throughout Britain. For sure. That is wonderful to
2: hear. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's been really great to get your expertise and your expert view on it. Yeah, thanks for seeing. And thank you for all you're doing. Well, thank you. Eva, quiz time. Yes. Favourite part. Are
1: you ready? Yeah. Um, I'm going to apologise well in advance for this one because I wrote this a while ago and I completely forgot I wrote it and I'm looking at it and feeling not very confident about it this quiz is called who said it ready uh quotes from and this is quoting from my own notes quotes from famous people slash film slash pop culture where beavers were evolved that is brilliantly Um, you know sketchy yeah it's really sketchy so i'm what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna read out the quote and then i'm gonna give you a clue because I haven't come up with multiple choice. Um, and then you just have to tell me who you think. It, they're not that okay, hard. Okay,
2: fire away. Let's
1: do this. Okay, okay. question number one. Here is the quote. The landscapes where beavers can do the most good aren't always ready for them. Environmental need and political opportunity don't necessarily overlap, especially in the American West. Witness the wolf, at once ecological hero and agricultural villain.
2: Who said It's a great quote. I mean, absolutely like no a idea. I'd like multiple choice, please. Okay. Uh, well, uh, big
1: clue. We've spoken to. We, we've been lucky enough to have the honour of this man on the lodge cast, Benjamin
2: Goldfarb. Uh,
1: yes, full name. Love the full name. I don't actually know if it is Benjamin. <laughs> <laughs> is it Benedict or Benjamin? <laughs> ben Goldfarb. Ben. Yes, Ben Goldfarb. Expant. Correct. One point. He he does have good zingers of quotes. Yes, that's true. Um, question two. Here's the quote. It's really easy. Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you.
2: What was the first bit? Is in Narnia? Well, yeah. Mr. Beaver? Yeah. 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 Mr. Beaver. And, uh, (laughs) shock.
1: And a bonus point for who played, which actress played Mrs. Beaver in The Chronicles of Narnia? Ooh. Really good one. Um... Vicar of Dibley. Yeah. Uh,
2: really? Do French. Yeah. Is it her? Yeah, oh, yeah. It's good. Yeah, Oh, yeah. Just I can massively picture massively her now. spoon-fed you there. That's, you did. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for that bonus Great point. Great, Mr. Beaver.
1: Uh, you're welcome. And finally, uh, not really a bonus point. Uh, question three is, this is so good, this quote, but a, a difficult one. As beavers build dams and bees build hives, human beings have spears. What? That's a- As beavers build dams and bees build hives, human beings have spears. Golly. He's an author of an acclaimed couple of books about the human race. He is also an academic, quite an exotic name. Would you like to- the title of the books he wrote? I mean, it might give it away. It's a bit cheaty, but I'm not going to get there without it. So fire away. He's the author of Sapiens and Homo oh. Deus. I don't know. I can't remember. I'm afraid. Difficult name to remember. As far as but I know Sapiens quiz. is an amazing book. It is an amazing book. So that can be a sort of point, if you like. Um, no, no, that's fine. That's definite <laughs> fail. But, um, um, the author is Yuval Noah Harari.
2: Oh, amazing, tricky question. But he's got this what a quote.
1: Quite tricky, sorry. Good quotes. Good quote. thank you for playing along. Anytime you like. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had included one on Bake Off. Because this week uh, there was a beaver on Bake Off, and that made that literally, quite literally made the headlines nationally.
2: Turn it into a cake. Is there a lesson there? If in doubt, yeah, turn I know. it into a cake. And the Brits go weak at the knees. So does Yolo Williams, uh, harking back to an episode
1: <laughs> for oh, a cake. I was literally thinking about that this morning. Yolo Williams just loves cake. <laughs> he needs to be another judge on it's
2: the best thing to come out of the Lodgecast for me. is uh, that little fact? Mm. Anyway, that is it for this episode of the Lodgecast.
1: Yes, but don't worry, we'll be back again next week for the final episode of the series where we're joined by none other than Gerhard Farb to take a closer look at the community side of things and explore something fascinating
2: whether social attitudes differ with or without beaver mitigation techniques. So make sure you have subscribed to The Lodgecast on your podcast platform of choice so that you don't miss that one. And please do a little reminder to leave us a five-star review. Yes, please. And for more from us at Beaver Trust, you can find us on all the usual
1: haunts on Instagram and Twitter at Beaver Trust or head over to our website, beavertrust.org and sign up for our free email newsletter.
2: See you back here next week. This podcast, as always, is a mixture of fact and opinion. It was hosted by Sophie Pavel and Eva Bishop. It was produced and edited by Emma Brisdian for Beaver Trust.